Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. Uh, This isn't yet the podcast, but I'm here to say that if you want to support us on Patreon, we would love that. There's all kinds of extra content that we're putting up there now. Robin goes off, he does all kinds of adventurous things. We've got loads of uh, just added extras and putting out quite a lot of stuff each week. So if you want to support us on Patreon, that's great. That's how we sort of record this in studio and keep going. But if not, thanks for listening anyway. No pressure. Life is complicated. See you later. Thanks. And just a quick note about the content of some of this episode, uh, that it does contain uh, discussion about subjects like rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment and things of that nature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, we'll get straight on with this one. We're joined by Laura Bates, who uh, has written three books, the first of which was uh, Everyday Sexism, which, of course... Uh, how, when did that start? I'm trying to think. Is that five years ago? It was 2012 the project started. So six years. Yeah, not so long. Um, and it's, it's so interesting to think about that, like, in terms of what's come since yeah. online and the fact that all the brilliant positive things that have built from it and then the way that in some ways things have shifted in quite a, a manageable way because <laughs> of it and, like, not because of it, after it. Yeah. And it's really... Um, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day because when you first started the project, it really affected me because it was the first time in my life where... I felt like everyone was becoming out in the open about things that they'd really held were private things. And suddenly being like, oh, I've had that. Oh, I've had that too. Oh, it was it was such an incredibly liberating thing. And like, I don't know whether we should be like, how did it come about? Because I expect you've probably been asked a million times. But like, did did you find when you did initially set it up that it was sort of mind-blowing the way that people responded. Yes, it was exactly that. It was just what you've just described. It was people going, oh, my God, well, that's happened to me and that's happened to me and, and that too. But everybody made a point of saying, until you ask me, I've never told anyone about any of these experiences. And it started actually as, as a verbal thing before the project was online. It was just conversations with people, mostly with women, saying have you ever experienced anything like this? And and for all of us, I think, it was so common and it was so secret. Mm. We'd never told anyone about it because it was normal because we were so, so immersed in the idea this is part of being a woman. It's unremarkable. You don't complain. You don't make a fuss. So many women had spoken up and they'd been told, oh, you just got the wrong end of the stick. You need to learn to take a compliment. He didn't mean it like that. You need to get a bit less uptight. Or even, look, I do know that these things do happen, but this instance I don't really exactly. trust. Or look elsewhere. There was like a real dog whistle racism there at the beginning as well. If you want to make a fuss about women, look at other countries in the world. Women here have never had it so good. You girls today don't know how lucky you are. <sighs> that real sense of like there's nothing to complain about here. But exactly that. It was that thing of... And in fact, sometimes I'd say, have you ever experienced sexism? And there would be a group of women and some would say, oh, no, I've never experienced anything. And I'd be like, well, that's fantastic. And then another woman in the group would say, you know, here are the things that have happened to me. And those other women would go, well, I have had 
that. And well, no, that happens all the time. And it was this amazing process that I think has happened for a lot of women recently as well, since Me Too, of going suddenly reevaluating a lot of what we have managed in our minds to kind of compartmentalize and explain away and force ourselves really to accept. And looking back and suddenly having a shift in that and thinking, actually, that wasn't okay. And I knew in my gut that it wasn't okay, but everyone told me that it was what I was wearing, I was asking for it, or he didn't mean it that way. And so I've let myself feel like I had to hide it or even being told like more like the enforcing from above that this is the way of the world and these things that we're telling you are absolutely pure facts and you're wrong if you feel uncomfortable with it yes and like that's where I feel like the effects of it are really starting to show in quite an exciting way is that I do feel that it's it's um I suppose gravitated upwards in terms of just that little bit more people understanding and appreciating difference of experience and trying to counteract things like that and listening a little bit more like not like (laughs) uh, I wish it was like everything has changed forever thank god but like (laughs) it's it's exciting to feel like what that did was force people to listen to women's experiences and like accept that they were true a little bit more yeah I hope so it does feel like things are shifting doesn't it like there is that sense a little bit more and I think women feel more able to stand with other women as well there's this sense I'm not alone and if I'm not alone then maybe I can say something we hear from so many people who say I've read all of these stories and suddenly it made me feel like I could fight back or I could report something or I just even something like I told my parents I told my partner for the first time that I was raped and it might be a woman who's in her 60s or her 70s who's for the whole of her life been made to feel that it was her own fault and for the first time ever because she's read a hundred other women's stories she's suddenly going oh my god it wasn't my fault and that in itself I think is really valuable before we even get on to the next stage of you know what justice looks like and of men changing their behavior and a lot of guys as well have come across it because that's the joy of social media it gets Mm -hmm. retweeted into their feed they don't go looking for it and it's someone they know or love who happens to have retweeted it and that starts a conversation and when it's people that they know and love often wrongly I think but that is the way of that it is in many for many people they're then more able to kind of identify with it and go oh my god this is huge so those conversations that might not have otherwise started and the number of men that get in touch and say well I I, I had no idea I'm completely shocked and we'll have like 10,000 women tweeting us saying that men have masturbated at them in in the street and women other women writing in and going yeah I'm nodding along to all of these I've had all of these things happen and then men going what what the what Mm. I can't this has blown my mind and that's helpful as well having that kind of level of awareness is helpful and it's my favorite thing in the world when people who are not affected by the thing yeah hear somebody saying i've experienced this and instead of saying no you're wrong go (laughs) oh wow i didn't realize it's like and especially online because so much of online especially recently is such warfare to see people be like wow i didn't know about that and i hear you and i hear that that was an experience you had oh my god it's such a treat it's so (laughs) it's so you know just like the one thing that I feel like it constantly teaches with me is like if somebody tells you their experience your first response should not be to go really though yeah is it though yeah could it have been this or that or then the next level of that which is often well-meaning which is why didn't you do this or that I would have done that couldn't you just have I would have done that if I did experience something which I definitely (laughs) never would couldn't imagine how it would feel (laughs) yeah exactly I'm trying to find in your in your new book which is called uh, Misogynation 
you have a, 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 a one of the, for people who don't know. It's, it's it's an interesting because it's a history really because it's it's all your articles, isn't it, from the last seven years, I suppose, yeah. sort of six seven years. And you have one, for instance, Katie Mack, I think, uh, Astro Katie. Yeah. You talk about she she put something up about science, and a man came along and went, uh, "I don't think you're fine. I think someone needs to learn their science." She went, "Well, I've got a PhD in astrophysics." Yeah. And uh, I mean, I could get another one, but that seems to be overdoing it. Um, yeah. And also, and the guy like, "I've read an article last week." It was even better than that. His claim for knowing to tell her better was that he'd been to space camp. Ooh. That was the, that when was, was his like credential. Yeah. Well, there's, that's there's the other one as well. Oh, there's the actual, there's a NASA astronaut, isn't there? Oh, and you're right. Is, yeah, it was that Oh, no, was it, or was oh, it that the one? I think both of them, all men say they've yeah. been to space camp. It just means we've been to a camp and put a bowl on our head. And we've all done it. It's an um, initiation. It's a ritual. Yeah. yeah, let me explain space camp to you, ladies. Uh, the, uh, cut that out, cut that out. Oh, God, that's going to be misinterpreted. Thank heavens I've left social media. Poor Robin, he gets a lot uh, of stick. Uh, hashtag not all men. <laughs> the, um, well, actually, the one that I'd really like to talk about, just because it's something we've been talking about uh, a, a lot over the last few recordings is there's a couple of essays about free speech yeah in this and and you write in in harassment versus free speech versus banter free speech is not limitless it doesn't enshrine anybody's right to abuse to incite hatred or to threaten and terrify others the right to speech is not the same as the right to be heard to be given a platform or an audience and this seems like a good time to be you know there's a lot of you know these new whatever you want to call these social media wars Mm. About the nature of free speech, mm-hmm. and you talk about imported the fact that, culture wars. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> from America. Catchy. Yeah, we've had to. We're not allowed to have them from Europe anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I find we have European culture wars of like. And I was just going to be so boring and stereotypical of like, no, that cheese is not from the region that you say it is. <laughs> oh, well, you would say that, but that's because you're a Derrida fan, aren't you? Whereas Foucault oh, wouldn't I'm have not. gone with cheese. Oh, I don't have the time for Derrida. It's all too complicated for me. I do apologise. <laughs> but that, that I'm just interested, that trying to understand the free speech is not just about the speech that is out there it's about the speech that is lost and the speech that is never yeah. heard yes that's what that's what i write about in the book the idea that we are so focused on essentially on the right to abuse that's what a lot of it boils down to and there's a lot of this kind of very high fleeting argument online that claims to be all about sort of moral and philosophical virtues and really it is about men feeling threatened that someone has said you can't say you're going to rape someone and they are mad as hell about it and what we hear about then is is a lot about the loud voices and whether or not they have the right to be those loud voices and, and in what way and in what space. And what we very rarely hear anyone even think about is the voices we're not hearing and why. So what about the freedom of speech of a black woman who's been forced off Twitter because the racist and misogynistic abuse that she gets has made it not worth living to be on there you know what about the women and it is the women who experience those intersections and multiple forms of abuse who are least likely to have their story picked up in the papers as the kind of perfect victims of online abuse and the trouble is that because the social media platforms are so terrible at dealing with it they only really act when a journalist gets in touch with a a request and then they go oh yeah we've actually sorted it out in that particular case you know we've deactivated all the accounts that were harassing that sort of you know whatever it is that that white middle class female mp or whatever it was, who of course deserves not to be harassed and that's right. But what it means is that there's a vicious circle where that, that kind of support isn't happening for the women who aren't being deemed you know, suitable for the spotlight in the front pages so they're likely to be getting worse abuse in the first place, less support to deal with it and we're losing their voices and we don't hear about them when we're debating who has the right to be heard and, and where. 
And I think there's a risk, actually, that we are potentially going to see a sudden impact from this in maybe five or ten years' time that nobody will see coming. I have this theory that we have this generation of teenagers at the moment who are often condemned as being very apolitical, um, as being lazy and, um, you know, um, disengaged. And really, I think what it is is that they're disillusioned with what we think of as traditional party politics, but they're not apolitical by any means. They're incredibly political. It's just that they are doing it in different ways, and for them it's mostly on social media. So if that's the arena, if we accept that that's the area in which young people are cutting their political teeth, learning how to debate, building an argument, learning how to come back and go back and forth. And within that same arena where they're cutting their teeth in debate, where they're learning those skills, the girls participating are being told, send us a picture of your boobs or get offline. Then we are subtracting them from that kind of training ground. And I think we could see a real dearth, a, a worse situation than we have now with fewer women in politics because those girls are disappearing from social media and we don't know it's happening because we don't hear about the missing voices and not just that like anything they say will be treated in a different manner yeah. to the exact same thing said by their male counterparts if they express an opinion stridently that will be challenged far more than their male counterparts and also challenged in a manner that is patronizing abusive and often grotesque and from that they'll be Subject, uh, subjects, <laughs> uh, subjects of abuse that we held up to be abused. Like what? What yes. scares me? Like hearing you like talk about it is, for me, like what is not being examined and what is not being taken seriously is the role of the extreme far right exploiting people who ten years ago had all their edgy humour message boards and trying to actively convert them. Yeah, and the fact that that is so prominent in so much of like trolling culture and online culture are these links to the right and the far right and even people who describe themselves as classical liberals online have these links and are exploited by the far right and yeah like you say like it it does also become gendered as well like not as well it is also very gendered as well and very racist pardon me so it does shut down people who don't fit into like the white male mould of it but at the same time like it scares me because I think young people cutting their political teeth on YouTube where there is a really strong hold on anti-feminism and um, like holocaust and art there are so many things on YouTube that are kind of reinforced and the people who are like trying to mainstream these things or like the useful mainstream fronts of these things mm-hmm. and yeah it does scare me a lot I think it's um it's upsetting to see it not being held in check and it's also been yeah. upsetting to see this whole freedom of speech debate mm. recently about the guy whether or not he was making a joke and whether or not what free speech means and whether or not hate speech laws should exist um to sort of see the the basis of that being these people, these edgelord people whose edgelords said seriously, <laughs> but these people who fucking um, part of their MO is to bully and abuse and to yeah. harass women and people of colour yeah. and LGBT people yeah. off of those spaces. And part of their joy is in abusing and mocking those people. And to see them suddenly being like, well, you are a scab because you're not supporting us. Like, like I personally have had people really, really laying into me for not standing alongside people who've like abused me and made my life a misery and it's like yeah. I, I'm sorry I've strayed a lot from the book and I would love no, to it hear doesn't like, matter. Uh, we, um, uh, we just say now misogynation is available in the shops now but so also, the, uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to 
in terms of books that because I just started reading, so I've, I've no depth of it at all. But I just started reading Astra Taylor's um, The People's Platform. Yeah. And I wonder what do, for people who want to get a greater understanding of, in some ways, also how because as you're, a lot of this is about capitalism. Really, it's about the fact mm-hmm. that we we you don't want to shut down what might be called free speech because it gets a lot of people. So, so you know, some of the more abusive things mm-hmm. also lead to an enormous amount of reaction, mm-hmm. and therefore they become you know it's good for advertising and it's mm-hmm. good for that part of the model. So what are the oh, good that's so areas? Chilling, isn't it? Mm. That like, oh, these people being very abusive makes us money, so we should be quiet about it. Well, I've... we've talked about I hate the internet before. That <laughs> yes. great book. Sorry, you know, <laughs> so have you read? Do you know I? Hate I the haven't internet. read it. No. But that that is a constant reminder of just going. Just remember, you're just giving away all your stuff for free. All your <laughs> ideas for free. Sorry, <laughs> yes, but is, is I think any... that's relatively rare, though. That it, it being beneficial, I think. Um, the only time that's ever happened to me has been when uh, Everyday Sexism, my first book, came out and a bunch of men went round writing handwritten notes and putting them in copies, hiding them in copies in the bookshops, saying, don't read this book, Women Lie About Rape, with these, like, misspelled kind of, like, little torn-out of notepaper sort of shoved in and, and that kind of sparked some interest around the book. But apart from that, you know, most of the time it's more like... You know, I've come home from being on Sky News and there's a message saying, I've just seen you on TV and I'd like to use your hair as handlebars and rape you until you die. Or Sorry, you know, I, didn't, I didn't explain myself properly. I'm terrible at mansplaining even. <laughs> God, <laughs> God, this Y chromosome has no. held me back. But no, what I meant was in terms of the actual the social media itself not the, you oh, making you money oh, yeah, from sorry, it but yeah. the oh, fact sorry I said, that, yeah. I said I that in a very clumsy media way companies, that, is, that is absolutely true because it is all about bottom line so if it was in their interest financially to tackle this they could do it yesterday they absolutely could have done it and it drives me crazy that they shrug their shoulders and there is this sense of well it's just so hard to police isn't it you know it's just so, we're talking about a company that has a greater greater profit margins than loads of countries in the world if they wanted to they could hire 50 50,000 moderators tomorrow to do this manually and train them properly. Of course they could fix it. There are things that they could do that would be so simple that it's absolutely mind-blowing. You know, when Leslie Jones, for example, was experiencing that barrage of misogynistic and racist abuse. For existing. For going, yeah, exactly, for, for being, being an, an actor How dare who she? was good. Exactly. In order to deal with that, she had to trawl through this most horrific, chilling stuff that people are sending her and individually report them. Yeah. What Twitter could do is, if they know someone is experiencing, and it is very often in that way, a kind of mob yeah. pylon, they could say, OK, do you know what? We're going to assign a moderator to have a look at everyone who is that that handle, who's mentioned that handle, mm-hmm. and any of those accounts which are in violation of our rules will remove them. And I mean, how for the next much six is months. that just not a brainwave? Exactly. Yeah. Must have occurred to them, and they don't choose to do it. So, And also, like, I think it probably... I just don't know whether things like open Nazism, and I'm not... The worst thing you can do is, like, allude jokingly that people on the far right are Nazis because that's their, like, big thing. But what I mean is people genuinely advocating for, like, modern Nazi parties and people genuinely ascribing to those ideas and values. I just don't know whether it's right to have that on your platform that's supposed to be about people chatting and enjoying their life like I don't know what the solution is but I would say you're allowed to as a society say that some values are not acceptable like racism and homophobia I think people that behave in that way on that platform shouldn't necessarily be allowed to be on that platform I, I like I 
I don't know why that... <laughs> That even saying that, I'm like, is that wrong? Like, but it feels really wrong that it's certain a things aren't. Company, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that is their small space of the internet. It's their their choice. So they could, yeah, exactly. I f- that's the thing. I feel like they could choose to say, these are our values, and if you don't subscribe to them, form your own one. But then from that, what worries me is the fragmentation of yeah, online communities really... again, and people sort of sat in their little bunker. <laughs> but... It's all working, isn't it? Well, yeah, but they how tied much the liberals the up in knots. That's the whole point. <laughs> We go, oh, but I want to, I want to, I want to, and that works. That's the problem with not being a dogmatist. Yeah, it's much more complex, but as you were saying earlier. The expectations yeah. made on you when you are not on the far right are far more complicated and great than the the expectations on the other side are not. Like, yeah, it's not really a level need playing field. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, so true. What do you think? Like, what positive things have you seen that make you feel like? this is going to be a prominent thing in the future or this might be... I think at the moment I'm feeling really positive about the number of things that we're hearing from people who are taking very small actions. I think we quite often think about fighting back, about, you know, changing things as having to be going on a march or signing a petition or, you know, waving a banner and and those things are great. But I'm also really inspired by the sheer number of people getting in touch saying, actually, I just did this thing. And it might be something really small and personal and the ripple effect could be massive. And if everyone did those small things, the difference would just be huge. So, for example, example a a bloke who wrote in and he he made a point of saying I'm a very ordinary bloke in his email (laughs) and he said that his football team had this chant that's really misogynistic and he'd never heard it if you see what I mean it was just what they chanted and then he'd discovered everyday sexism online and he heard it for the first time was like oh my god so he wrote to the club chairman to say what what are we doing what is this there was another bloke who said that he'd been reading um women's entries about street harassment and the same thing he said it had never occurred to me to think about how it made women feel and i read these stories and i was suddenly just completely my mind was blown and then he said he was walking down the street and there was some builders shouting at a woman in front of him shouting get your tits out and he kind of panicked and was like this is my chance what do i do what do i say ah and he sort of just panicked and lifted up his t-shirt <laughs> show them his own, which actually, you know, make, does make makes a point. You know, it makes them think, well, you wouldn't do it to me, so why are you doing it to them? And that, you know, kids, young women who are getting in touch, talking about the ways that they're fighting back, it's often something really small. It's girls at school who are getting together and starting a discussion group or a campaign or... One of my favourite ones recently is a woman who's walking down the street and a guy was doing some building work up on a roof and he started shouting really misogynistic, very explicit stuff at her. And she said, because he was that far away, I felt like I could engage safely. So I tried having a conversation and saying, just think for a second how you'd feel if someone was shouting about your genitals while you walked down the street because it's probably never happened to you. Can you imagine how it would feel? And it didn't go well. And the guy was like, fuck you, lady, slut, bitch. You know, it escalated. So she was like, well, I did try and have a conversation with you. And then she took his ladder down and walked off and <laughs> just left him up there on the roof. So I know they're small things, but there's so many people talking about those ways that they're finding to disrupt the normalisation of it, and that it's makes me feel really hopeful. everyday sexism. Exactly, yeah. It's everyday. all of those little everyday exactly. things that add up in the same way. Yeah, I've never thought about it like that. You're right, that's exactly it. Yeah, and that's what could change it, I think. It has to be that. Because there's big kind of political change that we've had that isn't working you know we know it's illegal to fire someone because they get pregnant and we also know that 54,000 women a year lose their jobs because they get pregnant so Mm. obviously there is something else happening that needs to change at a much more kind of cultural grassroots normalized attitudes and ideas level yeah I think that's an interesting thing with it because sometimes it might be false hope but when I see 
people who are like my son's age, like kids, they there's a lot of things that they just don't count as issues anymore. Yeah. It's like when if reading something like My Sister the Vampire and someone saying, Brilliant. that's a book for girls, I'm going... There's no such thing as boys' books and girls' books. That's why I love oh, Let There Be Toys. Amazing. And I know yeah, I know it's one things. of those groups where we go, aren't the bigger issues? Yeah, there, there are loads mm. of issues in the world. But there are a lot, and you can connect with a few of them. Yes, yeah. yeah. You, know? you can care about two <laughs> things at once. No one does that to anyone except women. It's it's such a thing of women. No one is out there going, well, the police shouldn't be tackling any frauds till they've solved all the murders. <laughs> like, and no one is out there going, well, if you talk about robbery and murder at the same time, you must think they're just equally seriously. What's wrong with you? Which is what happens if you talk about wolf whistling. Like, how are you saying it's rape? No, I'm saying it's a different thing. And and maybe that those things have a wider context, which is more broad than saying one leads directly to the other, but it is OK to talk about them. And that's what misogynation is about, actually. It's literally about looking at the bigger picture and joining the dots between these things and saying we can't tackle one without the other. We can't deal with something like domestic abuse of two women being killed every week by a current or former partner if we're not allowed to look at those everyday normalised forms of dehumanisation of women, whether it's in the media or in the street. Or it's not possible to tackle the underrepresentation of women in politics if we're not allowed to at least have a conversation about the fact that when our female prime minister and the first minister of Scotland have a big important meeting about Brexit, the front page of our biggest daily newspaper says, never mind Brexit, who won Lexit? That mm. that matters. It's not saying that one causes the other to say that it's OK to discuss them all and, and see them as connected. And, and they didn't print the result. I still don't know. And for those of you who are going to watch Legsit tonight on television, look away now. I wanted to ask you about books as, as yeah. well as your own, yeah, sorry. which is because uh, otherwise people go, you call book shambles. You only talked about one. We bought that one now. Um, but the, the well, books, she's written three, so buy three. The, um, what, what were the books in, 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 in terms of this area? Do, do you remember there was a point where you started to, to realise the, the imbalance? Was there anything in literature, anything that you, culturally, that you thought, right, I, I'm beginning to see, you know, that this is not just, again, the, the beginnings of everyday sexism. This is not just me. This is another way of looking at the world. Yes. Um, when I was soon after I started kind of talking about this and after I started Everyday Sexism, my husband bought me a book called um, Living Dolls by Natasha Walter, The Return of Sexism. And that was really interesting because she had previously written a book, I think maybe a decade before, in which she had kind of hypothesised that, that things were getting better. And then she wrote this book saying I was wrong, basically, and things God, were appalling. Sad. And that book really affected me because it was it was a moment during which I was still kind of opening my eyes to it all. And it is like putting on one of those 3D pairs of glasses in the cinema and once you've seen it you can't stop seeing it and I was kind of in that process when I read that book and that really blew my mind Um, and then I think there's so much that's really fascinating for people who are interested in feminism in terms of literature and so much of it I have still to explore and to learn from but I think that there are lots of really great starting places I think something like We Should All Be Feminists by Chimamanda Ngochi Adichie is a really good starting point Um, I think anything by Bell Hooks is really great in terms of looking at how feminism and how gender inequality kind of has a cumulative and intersecting impact with other different kinds of prejudice Um, also since we've talked about economics and and capitalism there's a really interesting book called Who Made or Who Cooked 
Adam Smith's Dinner um, by Catherine Marcel. And that is just fascinating because it completely upends economic models and shows how the kind of basis of our economic thought for decades has been based on the premise that we don't count in any way the unpaid work done by largely women throughout the centuries. It's not calculated and how that really is a massive flaw in the model of thinking. So I think that's really interesting as well. But for me, it's really interesting to talk about books and feminism because no one ever said the word feminism to me until I was 24. So I never knew, didn't know what it was to know anything about it. No, I was never taught about it at school, never came up. I just didn't know about the women's rights movement. I was absolutely shamefully ignorant. But looking back now, I was an absolutely avid devourer and still am of, of YA fiction. It's my favourite genre. I absolutely love it. And I learned about the ideas of feminism and of battling against cultural norms and gender stereotypes from those books, from those women, from even from, you know, really books like Little Women, you know, even from kind of classics like that, like Anne of Green Gables and Little Women, but also, you know, from more modern books. There are so many incredible writers now who are dealing with these really urgent themes, writers like Louise O'Neill or Meg Rossoff, writers like Mallory Blackman, whose YA does this incredible thing of fusing together, making you think about prejudice and inequality with What's like that? the best story that you You've ever read Noughts and Crosses? Yes, that's what I think of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just incredible. And those ideas came to me from those books before I had the words to describe what the ideas were. So that's really important, I think. Also, it's really good to know that there's like a whole stealth yeah. thing going on with like <laughs> just young people. What do you think about this? Huh? <laughs> just yeah. alluding. Exactly. I really hope so. I'm actually writing a YA fiction book myself at the moment because it's just so exciting. I think that idea of reaching young people with what is first and foremost hopefully a great story but also opens up questions and doesn't answer them but gives them the chance to ask those questions for themselves. I think that's like definitely one of the biggest um, miss... What's that word when it's like like misinformation but not miss... Like, this is so embarrassing. (laughs) Misconceptions. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm pregnant. I'm misconception. Isn't that actually the name of a book as well? By is it Joan Smith? Didn't she write one called something like that, which uh, is about? Yes, yes. Well, she's. Her, I think her most recent book is is it the Public Woman? I think, but she I has another one. one. That she it wrote might be years ago. Is it misogynies or no? It's misogynies. Yeah, I'm t- who's done misconceptions? I don't, no, I'm just thinking about one of the biggest misconceptions about feminism is that it's especially that's being perpetrated online is that it's dogmatic and that it's unchanging and that it's enforcing and the actually it's about kind of the process of living as a woman and Mm. the process of what society does to people and it's constantly needs changing and rethinking like when I first kind of became aware of feminism what I was aware of is I would put this in like inverted commas is white feminism Mm. or what I've come to know is like white feminism and then seeing that sort of understanding what that was and that changing and things like that Mm. I think um, it's actually it's so diverse and so complicated and changing all the time and it's yeah. so fluid, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I think so. And it's funny because people want to think of it as a single thing, mostly so that they can attack it and tear it down. Yeah. You see that even in kind of headlines, people say feminism has done this or that wrong, and you think, well, that's not grammatically correct. Feminism isn't a person or a, a thing. It's just literally the idea that people should be treated equally regardless of their sex. Yeah. Like, you can say feminists, but people don't because they want to kind of tear it all down. Yeah. And the worst one online, I think, is feminist hate men. It's the idea that feminism is anti-men, and it's so ironic 
again, it's like the witch hunt thing. It's so almost beautifully, exquisitely ironic that the people who want to tell you you must hate men because you're a feminist, the thing they most often pull out their trump card that will come up over again most commonly, it's the male suicide rate. It's three times higher than it is for women. So how dare you talk about women's rights when this massive issue is affecting men? And it breaks my heart because we know all of the research, all of the experts suggest that one of the biggest reasons for that is that we bring boys up in a world that tells them boys don't cry. Mm. Men are tough and manly and they don't talk about their feelings and that's exactly what feminists are tackling. That's exactly why feminism is good for everyone because those gender stereotypes don't exist in a vacuum. They're two sides of a coin and, you know, women experience the idea that they're over-hysterical, that they're hormonal, that they're over-emotional, that you wouldn't want a menopausal woman in the White House because you couldn't let all these hormones near the nuclear button. <laughs> it's connected. It's part of the same thing. Mm. So it's sad. I find it really sad to see that rhetoric especially being targeted at teenage boys online and I'll go into schools sometimes and they will be repeating word for word quoting Milo Yiannopoulos at me and you just know that it's got to them and they haven't had that kind of chance to have an open unbiased conversation before they've been sort of poisoned against it and that's really frustrating. But then what's exciting is that you get to speak to them and they get to go <laughs> Oh, we met this person who's a feminist, but she was so open-minded and she was so interesting. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, maybe that's... And the yeah. girls, the girls that they're talking to just inspire me so much. I had one talk, actually, where the boys had been online before I went in saying, we're going to disrupt this session and, like, some bitch is coming to tell us why she hates men. And the girls, it was a girls' school and a boys' school and they were coming together for this lecture and the girls had spotted it. They picked up on it on the Twitter of the boys. And so they got out of their lessons five minutes early. They turned up at the hall and they put themselves in every other chair so when the guys came in they had to sit each of them between two girls and they couldn't be in that kind of dissenting block, block. and it worked brilliantly it just diffused it and that was amazing it was so clever but really it's so upsetting that. that that's that they had that's to. what yeah. they'd thought in advance it is yeah but then once we actually had the conversation and they were forced to actually listen there was a lot of them saying well i didn't this is not what i thought it was going to be and, and that's really positive and changing their minds because young people can change their minds and that's what we have to hope. <coughs> I read that um, book about Salem, the Salem witch trials that, that was quite big the other... I got it in an airport, so I'm thinking it's got to be pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't remember what it... The Witches is called. Okay. And it's by somebody that was that kind of takes you through the Salem witch trials. And I, 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 don't, like, I don't know if I'd wholeheartedly recommend the book because I, like... I was a little bit like, well, I've learned some things, <laughs> but I, yeah. but it was fascinating. Like, I, yeah. I still have all my books I had as a kid, which were because I was so in, into horror films, and uh, I also have all the books about witchcraft and demonology that Hamlin yeah. and Octopus used to bring out, and some of them are beautifully illustrated. But there's also there's always the same three pictures of uh, the naked witch doing something. I mean, that was part of it. It, it was at that time going, uh, and here is a middle aged lady naked witch doing a thing just near a pentagram, and that's a very important part of the witchcraft. <laughs> is uh, this? Well, that's what I've been finding actually, which is amazing that it was so much about curbing women's sexuality about seeing their bodies as inherently dangerous so much of it is sexualized it is about the idea that they were cavorting with the devil one of the punishments was to sit them on a on a stool a burning burning hot stool as a way of curing them there was a you know women who were midwives who were accused of witchcraft blamed of transferring the labor pains of the pregnant woman onto her partner like the anxiety that is inherent there is so so blatant and and you know the majority the vast majority of women who were killed, uh, burned at the stake or hanged in, in Scotland and England were women. And it's been really fascinating to discover that we all know about Salem, but in England and Scotland there was this massive kind of witch 
craft hysteria. And in Scotland in particular, they put three times as many women to death as they did in England during the same period, even though, you know, obviously has a much smaller population. So it's actually it's a fascinating topic to look at. And the the similarities in the way that, for example, you know, you've got girls at school today, for example, being told if you send me a picture I'll send it to all my friends and you'll be a slut and a whore and a prude but if you don't you're frigid and uptight and you're a bitch and then you think about a ducking school you know you think well if you, you float then you're innocent and you, if you float then you're guilty and if you sink then you're drowned and you think yeah you're stuck there is no right way to to win this you are you're doomed and there are just so many things like that where you just think this is the same thing and I'm obsessed with it because people are always saying to me well look at social media and hasn't it done this awful thing to young girls and all these new problems that we're experiencing and isn't it shocking this online abuse this misogyny god where did it come from and it's awful and you look back to 1600s 1700s and go no no it's exactly the same thing that's a great part of matt haig's how to stop time i don't know if you've read his latest novel no i've read his how to be a, how to stay reasons to stay uh, reasons alive, to stay alive. he's loved. got a kind of follow-up to that hasn't he coming out soon but mm. he's he's in how to stop time which is about someone who has this specific condition that means that they age a year every 15 years so they live across an enormous oh. amount of time and his his mother in the uh, in the it would be the 16th century is it the early 17th century there's a whole piece about when the witch you know finder oh, really? comes in and uh, and her kind of trial and it's very visceral and it's very mm. it, it's it's one of the most powerful pieces in, mm. in in that book is him watching the way his 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 mother is tortured and mm. and destroyed what an exciting concept though what, like a really... Sorry, not yeah. the torture in the... That yeah, sounds like got, I'm not... Please be specific, Josie. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, so I'm a woman, so I'm just, I've yeah. taken all that on. No, but I... I um, it, it, yeah, what, creatively, what an interesting mm. concept. I always it's think about book. how much it relates to, as well, who's heard and who's allowed to speak. Yeah. Because when people say, gosh, all this... Oh, well, all this misogyny. God, it's come out of nowhere. And it's like, <laughs> no, no, it's just now these young women have a Twitter account yeah. and that they the can voice. participate in certain things, albeit under threat but you know 20 years ago the established narrative was the one yes not by them absolutely and maybe that's why there is this panic about free speech because people don't like that and they want to shut it down they want to kind of find ways to shout louder even on those platforms It's, it's sort of trying to it's very much about focused on trying to silence those voices and revert back to a norm of a kind of more canonical structure perhaps that we've seen where if you look at what's been considered to be literature worthy of reading over the centuries and who wrote it, or even if you look at, you know, when somebody writes a story that happens to be about a family situation and about relationships and a man does it and it is this brilliant, you know, prize-winning novel and a woman does it and it's chiclet and it's half price in the holiday section. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and all who's being reviewed and, and who the reviewers are, it's amazing when you think how big of an impact literature has in terms of our ideas about the world and whose stories we're hearing and whose voices. And I often think about that when I go to schools and they kind of think that dealing with sexism is having one classroom in which the kids come in for one day and have one hour. And you think, no, it's about so much more than this. It's about what books they're reading and who they're studying in history. And it's about the school dress code and how you enforce issues of sexual bullying. It's, it has to be bigger picture, yeah, yeah. I think. Um, misogynation is out now um, <laughs> thanks very much for listening uh, and you can support us via Patreon if you want or any of those kind of things we'll probably now do a list of people who are supporting us via Patreon should we do that Josie? yes that sounds fun um, Scratchy R great name just gets gets to the point Matt Barton David Robinson Marcus Brazil Dominic Orcock Mark Waring 
Oliver Harvey and Jack Les Camilla. That's a cool surname as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Robin and Josie. And if you would like to be read out as a Patreon supporter on the episode, uh, then you need to become a Patreon supporter. And you can do that at patreon.com slash bookshambles where you'll get extended episodes, bonus episodes, all sorts of stuff on there. So do check that out. And just a reminder of some of our upcoming live shows as well. May 4th, we are doing a live shambles for the London launch of Dean Burnett's The Happy Brain book. Robin and Dean will be in conversation at King's Place in London. And you can get tickets at the King's Place website or the Cosmic Shambles website for that. We have our four episodes of Book Shambles recorded live at the Albert Hall in the Elgar Room on the 4th and the 11th of June. Uh, Lucy Green and Adam Buxton are the first two guests we've announced for that. We have Space Shambles. We have Space Shambles on June 15 in the main auditorium at Albert Hall, hosted by Robin and Chris Hadfield, with lots of amazing guests as part of that show, including an Apollo astronaut. Uh, Tickets for all those shows are at the Royal Albert Hall website. Uh, Robin is also on tour up and down the UK, so uh, check out the Cosmic Shambles website or his website for venues and dates. And we've got some more uh, events, uh, Book Shambles and Cosmic Shambles events to announce soon. And uh, because a lot of people have been asking, no, not all of them are in London. So we will be doing uh, some some shows in other parts of the UK, uh, which we'll be announcing very soon, hopefully. Thanks very much for listening. We will be back next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.